This is the second week that we're exploring the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, I'm actually going to start in chapter 2. I'm going to go back and and touch on things in in chapter 1 throughout the sermon. I'm sure you remember what I said last week, that Hebrews is a sermonic letter. Even if you look just right to the left of it at Philemon, that's much more standard Greco-Roman letter to to one church or to a group of churches. Hebrews doesn't do any of that, though it's speaking the same theology. Long ago, at many times... It has a different feel to it, so I'm going to read part of the text initially as our scripture reading, and then I'm going to refer to it throughout my sermon. So we're going to start at chapter 2, verse 1, which is, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Got that, steve Excellent. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by us, by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. I'm going to jump to the end of verse 8. Now, In putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Can I get an amen? Perhaps. Good grief. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Moving to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. As I've been looking at this text for a couple of months, um, the thing that pops out to me, especially in in chapters 1 through 5 of Hebrews, and uh, especially in 1 and 2 here, is I think your theology might be better than you think it is. Some of you are already confident in your theology. Um, Maybe. Let me, just, let me just give you a quiz and show you. Your theology is pretty good. Jesus or angels, who do we worship? Right, great. And I say that not to sound silly, but the writer of Hebrews, and he's, he, he, I assume it's a he, we actually don't know. The writer of Hebrews um, is pointing something out that seems elementary, and then in chapter 5 will invite us into a, a more thorough discussion of. But at the time, and this was actually happening in the Colossian church also, um, Men and women were struggling to understand who is Jesus. 
People still remembered him and his teaching, and they were trying to understand, was he more like an angel than like a human? Was he more like God or an angel? And these teachings still exist, by the way. They're called different things now. The book of Hebrews continues to combat um, false pictures of Christianity. Who has more power, Jesus or angels? Nailed it. Who do we go to exclusively for truth, Moses or Jesus? Yeah, doesn't mean Moses wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean he didn't write large sections of the Old Testament that, in fact, the writer of Hebrews is quoting here that Moses didn't even realize exalted Jesus. That'll come a little later in the book of Hebrews. We have an opportunity, though it might seem simple in terms of comparing angels to Jesus, we have an opportunity to be grown in our understanding of him and his offices, his nearness to us. This passage is incredible in that it talks about Jesus so beautifully, so regularly quoting Psalm 2 and Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 104 and um, 2 Samuel 7. And talking about Jesus' nearness to us. That's why the language of brother is in there multiple times. There's a theological reason, but also how near is he to us? Some of you have brothers you don't like. Jesus isn't like them. He's like the one that you feel totally comfortable with and even protected by. The one who made a path for you. When we look at verses, like in the beginning of chapter 2, and he says, um, lest we drift away, how shall we escape if we neglect? And then later in chapters 5 and 6, there will be more verses to this. We, want, we ought to remember the point of the book of Hebrews when we look at those texts. Because the writer of Hebrews could be taken out of context, especially of the rest of Scripture, but also even of the book itself, to be thought to be telling us that we can actually lose our salvation if we don't attend to it. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to encourage you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the point of Hebrews is summarized well in perhaps the most memorized section of it, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, setting aside every weight and sin which so easily entangle us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat at the right hand of the throne of God. When we remember that that's the point of Hebrews, those of you who call Jesus Lord, be encouraged and persevere. Persevering doesn't sound like an encouraging word unless we remember the world is under a curse, and Jesus has not yet come back and taken up his crown. Then we remember, oh, right, it is challenging to be a follower of Jesus, though it is the most joyful life available to us. So in chapter 2, what he's warning them on is don't pretend like you're not a person of faith. Even here in just chapters 1, part of chapter 1 and 2, the writer regularly references Jesus's three, this is what's called Jesus's threefold office. This is a way of summarizing his work, and it's so important, so important. Prophecy, not future speech, though that happens sometimes. Prophecy, truth speak. What is truth? What is true about God and the world and ourselves? What Jesus said. Most specifically, perhaps, the Sermon on the Mount, the longest speech we have by him to a crowd. I suppose we could put the high priestly prayer up there. I haven't really compared verse by verse which one's longer. 
He is the truth speaker, and this is so important. I, I hear people say, I had words of prophecy spoken over me. And I'm not saying those things don't exist, but here's what I, always pops into my mind when someone says that. Are you so familiar with all of the true prophet's words that you're also comfortable with that? And if you are, terrific. That's actually how we test the spirits, Paul's term for knowing whether someone else's words uh, that are not directly scriptural are true, is by the true prophet. Does what they say about God or about me match up with Jesus? And if it does, well, terrific. You're doubly encouraged. Sometimes I get a little nervous. And priest, the word propitiation in chapter 2 is covered. There's the good news implied here because of the style of the writer of Hebrews. Your sin is covered. Not like hidden, like it's covered. I got it covered. Jesus has it fully covered forever. When he looks at you, he sees an untarnished image of God that you represent uniquely because he made propitiation for you. And he's also king, and we're waiting. We're waiting. We see it everywhere. We see it in our broken relationships. We see it in how we care for the earth. We see it in how we harm one another. We see it in sickness and disease. Disease we understand and disease we don't. We are waiting for him to take his crown up. And I chose superior because... There's, there's a study, there's an excellent, excellent study on the book of Hebrews, and it's just called Better. And I love that because it's simple, but I don't love it because most of the time that I hear someone say the word better, myself included, we mean it as a comparison. There is no comparison between Jesus and any other. He is superior, and he's superior to angels. In chapter 1, he writes about Jesus, and then he writes about angels. He says this in chapter 1, verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a, a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Do angels worship? Yes. Does Jesus worship? No, because he is God. He is in constant loving communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But I don't think we call that worship. I think we call that loving community in the Trinity. And again, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. It's getting a little eschatological here. Historic premillennial people will like verse 11. Amillennial people will like verse 12. And the writer of Hebrews is pretty comfortable with the tension. What we all want is for Jesus to come back, however it's going to look. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's quoting Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. He talks about the angels and the fact that they worship. He talks about... Um, Jesus' role taking up the kingship in the line of David. Do you have a Bible with a concordance? Just curious. Do you like it? I sometimes do. Depends on the book. 
you know. With Hebrews, the concordance is both really important and really could, can be annoying. This, the current Bible that I have, the concordance is at the very bottom right in an even smaller font than I've ever seen, which is crazy because Bibles are notoriously small font books and thin page books. The book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament by far more than any other book. And the reason I say that to you is if you study this, and especially if you study it in a slow fashion, you'll want to go back and read these texts. You know, when Samuel spoke about Jesus in 2 Samuel 7, he did not realize all that he was saying as much as you do. When Moses wrote about Jesus in Deuteronomy 32, he did not know all that you know about him. Even the writer of Hebrews, when he's talking about the end times in verses 11 and 12, didn't have the book of Revelation, probably. I think Hebrews is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And yet there's something for us to learn here, most specifically about angels. Look at verse 14, because what are they? And let me, just, let me just ask, what do you picture? In August of 2001, I was... Um, my uh, stepmom gave me a gift to go to Ireland for 10 days. I actually went to a concert. So U2 at Slane Castle. It was amazing. And while I was there, I went to Waterford. Not Waterford, Connecticut. Waterford, um, England or Ireland? Thank you. I thought so, but just suddenly I was like, huh. And I bought my mom a uh, Waterford angel. Not, not the one who sent me on the trip. I think I bought her wine glasses. Anyway, the, the angel got to her on September 11th of 2001. She was very thankful. She still has it, and it's beautiful. And it doesn't look like an angel. It looks like a fat baby. (laughs) What do you picture? You know the words cherubim and seraphim in the Old Testament? Do you know the root of them? Winged sphinx. Winged serpent. And that's not because angels are snakes. It's because the other word for them is messenger, both in the Old and the New Testament. In Genesis 22, uh, the writer alternates in describing Abraham's um, worship of God that he thought would involve sacrificing his son between the name of the Lord and an angel of the Lord. I wonder how we define it. I think with angels, we're, it's, like, it's like when we're talking about the Trinity. We're sort of like, I like to think of angels as, and then we're doing something profoundly not scriptural. What if we all listened to the writer of Hebrews and were encouraged by what they actually are? Because they do exist. There's a finite number of them. They worship. People don't become them. I'll get to that in a minute. Are they not all ministering spirits? Sent out to serve who? You. For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. I don't expect you to memorize this verse on the spot. I certainly haven't. This is the quickest definition we have for what an angel is, and it's an encouragement to us, and it's part of our theological understanding and growth. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So right now, angels are participating with the Holy Spirit of God, drawing people to call him Lord and therein receive life. That's good news. The problem is they're invisible to us. And because of what we do and what we don't know, because of our imagination and our priorities, I wonder if we sometimes talk to Jesus a little like he's an angel. So our theology may be better than we think it is, but is our practice good? Do you speak to Jesus with the affection of a kind and good brother and with the full expectation that he is the prophet, priest, and king? That's a challenge, right? 
to both speak with him as intimately as he describes himself here twice as a, as a brother and reflecting his threefold office. I think oftentimes we talk to him about small circumstances in our life. And that's good because he cares about every single facet of your life. But if we only talk with him about the small facets of our life, we're treating him like an angel. And we misunderstand the role of angel. But then that's how we talk with him. Some of our prayer needs to be worship and praise. And certainly we talk with him about circumstances. We do all of these with, with intimacy. There's a movie that I like a lot. I'm not going to show you a clip of it because the internet kicks our live stream off and it's a super awkward scene, like crazy awkward, the kind of scene I love in films and you probably should not watch this movie. Let me just say that, just in case. It's called Rabbit Hole. And in it, uh, Aaron Eckhart and Nicole Kidman are parents who have lost a child. And they're at a support group for others who have lost a child. And a woman says, but I know that God just needed one more angel. And Nicole Kidman starts laughing uncontrollably. And it's so painful to watch because that's not what you do when someone's talking about their child who died. But people don't become angels. And that's important to understand for so many reasons because the good news of Jesus has so much more to offer you and me in our grief. 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we will judge angels regardless of the age of death? And the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, verse 6, is incredibly clear and scripturally sound that the children of the followers of God are followers of God. If you want to continue to study, you can look at the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 17, and you think that's way too technical, and only one of you is going to look that up, but it's so profoundly encouraging that the covenants of God for his people go outside of our understanding of time. For those that lost someone close and they were young, when they are given a new body, I believe it will be an adult body and that you'll recognize them and that they will judge angels. So much more will their crown be in the new heavens and the new earth. I think when we talk about angels, we're really interested in imagination. I really liked the movie Constantine. It, it certainly goes into all sorts of crazy, weird, unbiblical places, but I'll tell you, it's interesting how they portray the supernatural. I really liked City of Angels, portrayal of angels with respect to this. Angels have free will, but their free will is not a moment-by-moment -moment thing like us. It's one big decision, according to this movie, and I think that's closer to the biblical account. Perhaps the most accessible angel for us to picture might be the least biblical in how he actually operates. I don't mean because he's not a good angel, you know, he's earning his wings. I mean compared to what the Bible says angels actually do. He's also the least scary. I had a scary picture in there, and about 10, 15, I was like, we should just take out the scary picture, right? Nobody needs to be scared. We have Jesus on our side. But it's challenging to trust Jesus because he's seated at the right hand of God and not here among us. It'd be easier to trust him if he was standing here. It might, or not easier. Simpler? 
Similarly with angels, they do exist. There's a finite number of them. They have free will, though it functions differently than us. And we have a more glorious role than they do, though we're going to have to wait to enjoy that. Jesus is superior to angels, though invisible to us, and he became our priest. Chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, which I already read, goes through the deep theology and ends with something really beautiful. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Remember the promises to Abraham? Are you familiar with Genesis 12 and 15 and 17? Look up and see the stars of the sky, and your children will number more than them. If you call Jesus Lord, you're included in that. The reason I'm referencing that is because the writer of Hebrews does at the end of chapter 2. What I want you to hear is, he's not ashamed. I know you feel like he is sometimes, and you have to utilize the living interior argument of the gospel. I know you think he is sometimes, because he did something harmful. But he's not. I know sometimes you're just confident. You just know it. I know, I know he's ashamed. And that's a more complex living argument that you need to make with yourself, probably with a friend, too. You can chat about it a little bit. But what if, among other things, that the writer of Hebrews is teaching us, we actually believed this? He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed. That's good news, isn't it? I don't know how many of you have an older brother. I have two. I have three brothers. And I was thinking through, they're all kind of goofballs, but, um, oh, there. Yeah, that's, that's pastoral cussing language right there. Um, but there are times that I'm comfortable with all of them too, especially my older brothers, because they're my older brothers. My oldest brother is an agnostic philosophy professor and oddly, probably the easiest of all my siblings to be with, especially in a large group of family. <laughs> and it's because he has uh, learned some humility. And I love having intellectual conversations with him because he's absolutely brilliant and humble enough to dialogue with me. It wasn't always that way. When I started learning things he didn't know, it got a little better. And then as life humbled him, it got a lot better. I'm sure I needed some humility too, but we're, talking, we're just talking about him today. My other older brother... Um, we quote movie lines. We grew up watching Ghostbusters starting in the scene where they destroyed the bar. For years, I thought that was the first scene in Ghostbusters. And you might think that's a short period of time. We can actually quote movie lines for a long time because we watched these movies over and over and over because we had them on VHS. My little brother, he and I are the two sons of of Jim Blazer, and so we have a lot in common there, and he is by far the funniest. And none of them are going to listen to this, so I could just talk about them somewhat freely. My point is I'm comfortable with them at times. How much more so are we comfortable with Jesus who not only made propitiation for you but is not ashamed to call you his close, younger sibling? That's a theological thing also. Adam, is our, Adam and Eve are our first parents. Sin came into the world, so we need a second Adam to live an entirely holy life that we might be drawn back to the Father, but it's also a term of intimacy. Jesus is your good and kind older brother. 
In verses 14 through 18, it describes the importance of his earthly ministry with respect to how much he suffered. I don't know if this is a question you have. This is a question often asked in my Christian school. Why didn't Jesus just come down, frankly, earlier and then almost immediately die on the cross once he was old enough? Well, one of the reasons is so we know that he can sympathize. Do you know in your suffering that Jesus also suffered? Do you know in your loneliness that he experienced profound loneliness? Do you know in your chronic and acute griefs that he is acquainted with grief also? That's part of the reason that he didn't just come down to earth, become old enough to be a propitiation so that we know that he sympathizes. And that requires imagination and it requires us learning and being gripped by the word of God and allowing it to expand our faith and imagination to understand these things. But he's not only your perpetuation, he also suffered. And that moves not only our mind, that he would go to that length, but also our emotions and our very being to trust him more. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise and thank you for your ministering spirits that are now drawing men and women to you. We praise and thank you that you are indeed king and our preference would be that you return right now and set things to rights. In the meantime, Holy Spirit, give us strength. Help us to be gripped by your truth and your life and the ways that you lead us into. Protect us from all that would tempt us, draw near to us and help us, heal us and make us whole. Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.